Well, we began this series by looking at the kingdom of heaven with that first parable. Jesus came on the scene and said, the kingdom of heaven is like. And we talked about the parable of the soils. And we talked about that idea of, uh, of sowing in, in the seeds. And the seed, the, the, the seed was the word, the message of the kingdom, right? So we began the series with the, the focus on the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to end the series with a focus on the kingdom of heaven with two parables that Jesus is going to give us in Matthew 13 this morning. But it's not as though Jesus just began talking about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13 with the opening parable with the parable of the soils. Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of heaven from the very beginning and outset of his ministry. In fact, his forerunner was a man named John the Baptist, yes? And John the Baptist came on the scene and John the Baptist's message was not, hey, just come out and be baptized, but it was repent and be baptized for what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. And then John the Baptist is imprisoned. And so his public ministry is in effect silenced. But then Jesus picks up his mantle and goes on and he continues with the same message. And Jesus himself taught and proclaimed and preached, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then as as Jesus continued his, his ministry in Matthew chapters five through seven, we have what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Yes. And the Sermon on the Mount by many has been framed as the kingdom ethics sermon. And we read the Sermon on the Mount. And if you remember back to our series on the Beatitudes, we talked about the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the purposes on the Sermon on the Mount certainly is to confront us with our own sinfulness. When Jesus says something like, hey, you've heard it said, do not be angry, but I tell you, if you've been angry, or do not murder, but I tell you, if you've been angry in your heart towards a brother, you're guilty of murder. Or when Jesus said, you know, You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. And, and all of us have to sit back with the crosshair squarely on our chest and say, okay, whoa, I'm, I'm guilty. I can't do this. And it's meant to say, it's kind of the Old Testament law reframed in the New Testament for us to say, we need an alien righteousness. We need Jesus. But another purpose for the, the, the Sermon on the Mount is to, to show us, to reveal to us what the kingdom citizen is going to look like in heaven that there isn't going to be any more anger, that there isn't going to be any more lust, that there's not going to be any more divorce. In fact, the Beatitudes is really going to be what defines the kingdom citizen in the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, the meek, the gentle, the one that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And so Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven even in the the Sermon on the Mount there. And then we get to uh, Jesus's work and his miraculous work in particular. And with the miracles that he's done and the miracles that he did throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus was, was pulling the veil back on this broken and fallen world and giving us a glimpse of what the kingdom of heaven will be like when all of the effects of the curse are undone. And so to this point in Matthew's gospel, we've seen things like in Matthew 8, 1 through 4, a, a leper healed of his leprosy because in the kingdom of heaven, there will be no more disease. In Matthew 8, 5 through 13, there's the healing of a paralyzed man. Because there will be no more physical defects in the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 8, 14 through 17, there's the healing of Peter's mother-in-law because there will be no more sickness in the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 8, 23 through 27, there's the calming of the storm because there will be no more natural disasters in the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 8, 28 through 34, there's the healing of two demon-possessed men because there will be no spiritual oppression of any sort in the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 9, 18 through 25, Jesus raises a girl from the dead because there will be no more death in the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 9, 27 through 31, he restores sight to blind men 
Matthew 9, 32 through 34, he gives speech to a mute man. Matthew 12, 9 through 14, he heals a man with a deformed hand. Matthew 12, 22, he casts out a demon of a blind and mute man. And so these are all things that have happened prior to Jesus beginning to teach on the parables of the kingdom of heaven. And so he's given us a foundation from which to think about the kingdom of heaven. And this is the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom citizen of Matthew 5 through 7. It's the the miraculous glimpses that we see that will no longer be miraculous. It will be every day. It will be normal when we are in the kingdom of heaven because all of the, the sin and all of the effects of sin will be completely gone and completely undone. The clearest glimpse, though, that I believe that we get of the kingdom of heaven is actually not in the Gospels at all, but in the book of Revelation. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, this is coming towards the end of John's heavenly vision. And beginning in verse 1 of chapter 21, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Jump down the page there to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the, the names of those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 22.1, then the angel showed me the river of life. The river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the trees of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more and they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. This is the kingdom of heaven in its most tangibly described way for us that that we find in the scriptures. And this is what Jesus is talking about here. But we look at that and we read about that and we read about no more tears and no more crying, no more mourning, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more disease, no more sin and none of its effects. And yet now we look around at the world in which we live and we see and we find that we live in a world with death and depression, and anxiety, and sorrow, and heartache, and divorce, and children who rebel against parents, 
We live in a world with every kind of cause that one can find under the sun that has anything to do with everything except for Jesus. And we live in a world that can't find the answer. But when we think about and when we're confronted with the kingdom of heaven, we find a place where none of those things will ever exist ever again. We find that the kingdom of heaven is the answer to everything that's wrong in the present world that we find ourselves in. And the reason it is the answer is because of the one who is the king of the kingdom of heaven, and that's Jesus. James Boyce says this about parables. He says, the parables break through mere words and make us ask whether there has indeed been any real difference in our lives. Isn't that what we should expect since the parables come from the lips of Jesus? No one was ever better than Jesus at getting through the pretense to reality. The two parables that we're going to look at this morning, that's really what it's, it's all about. Getting through the pretense to reality. Because we can say, well, sure, we want the kingdom of heaven. We want to be with Jesus. We want to be with the Lord. But, but does that make a difference in how we live our lives? And it should, and I pray that it will. And so take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding the pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So the kingdom of heaven in these two parables are compared to two things. The first one is a a treasure in a field. Now, that sounds odd and maybe brings up pirate imagery in your head, Jack Sparrow and and Treasure Island and and the X on the ground and everything else. But that's not what we're talking about. In fact, what we're talking about is similar to what one of the the men in the parable from last week did with his talent. What did the the one given one talent do with that? He went out and buried it, right? I don't know if you've ever thought about, well, why why did he bury it? Well, at this time, first century Israel, there was no Chase Bank down the street. There was no Bank of America. There was no Wells Fargo. There was no Roman Bank of First Centurions down the, the street that he could go join and, and deposit his talent to. And so what would happen is people that, that had wealth, people that had property, people that had something that they didn't just want laying around their house because they also didn't have security systems and alarm systems in the local police that they could call, people that wanted to protect what they had, their possessions, they would often go out to a field and they would bury them in the ground. Well, things would happen to those people. For instance, at at times they would decide, well, we're going to take a journey and they would leave home and and they would fail to return. Well, then that treasure was left in the field. Or there would be a a war or a battle and an opposing village would come in or even an, an outside army would come in and ransack their town and ransack their village and they would be forced to flee and they would leave everything behind, including that treasure that was buried in that, that field. Or they would just simply die and leave the treasure in the field and no one knew where it was. And so this was not uncommon. And so as Jesus is saying, it's like a man who found a treasure in a field. It's not like this was every day this was happening, but this would have been someone going, okay, I, I get that this is within the realm of, of possibility. But this is a unique treasure because this is a treasure that the man comes and he finds and it's so great that he immediately covers it up so that no one else will see it. And he decides, I have to have this no matter the cost. Similarly, the second thing that Jesus compared it to was a pearl of great value. 
And this is a merchant. This is a seller of fine pearls who's going and looking for the pearls that he wants to then take and go and, and, and sell. And so he's going to the various vendors and he's looking around and he's, he's got his black cloth and he's comparing all of the different pearls and he's been doing this for his whole life. And, and then he finally comes to this one vendor and, and even walking up to his display, he can tell there's something different about this one pearl that, that this man has. That this man has never seen, this merchant has never seen in the thousands, hundreds of thousands of pearls that he's seen. He's never seen a pearl like this one. And so just like the man with the treasure in the field, this man says, I have to have it no matter the cost. Jesus was making a, a, a pretty plain statement to us about the kingdom of heaven with this opening concept. And that is, he was making a statement about the value of the kingdom of heaven that is worth more than anything else in the world and should be worth more than anything else in the world to us. I was watching the, the Hobbit trilogy recently. I haven't read the books, so if you're a guy that says you have to read the books before you read the movie, I apologize in advance, but I didn't. But I was watching The Hobbit, and it, it was, I thought it was well done. I was entertained. But there's the scene in The Hobbit where Bilbo is, is in the tunnels underneath the orc fortress. And you guys probably know the name of it. I'm not nerded out to that extent that I could tell you all the names of the different territories in, in Hobbit land and uh, in Mordor and those things. But he's underneath the, the orc fortress there, and he encounters a creature. And who's the creature that he encounters underground there? Gollum, Smeagol, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and so he's down there and he's, he's underground and, and Smeagol's there and yet Bilbo finds something that belongs to Smeagol and he picks it up and he puts it in his pocket, right? And what was that, that, that thing that he picked up and put in his pocket? He was the ring. It was, in fact, it was the one ring to rule over all rings. It was the ring that turned into the Lord of the Rings, right? It was, it was that ring. It was the, the ring that was the, the most powerful ring that had been made. And it was a ring that Gollum was obsessed with, consumed with. At one point in time, Gollum figures out that, that Bilbo has stolen the ring, taken the ring from him. And Gollum goes crazy trying to get it back, loses his mind. In fact, it carries over into the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings after that too. There's not often that you're going to hear a preacher encourage you to be like Gollum, right? But this morning, I want you to think about how obsessed Gollum was with that one ring and ask yourself, am I that consumed with the kingdom of heaven? Am I that consumed with Christ? Because really when we read about the kingdom of heaven and when you read kingdom of heaven here, what we need to understand is not so much the place, but the person, the king of the kingdom of heaven. That this is not about being consumed with an eternity in, in, in a kingdom, but an eternity with the king. And that's what we should see. And that's what Jesus was talking about with this treasure in the field and the pearl of great value, that they're priceless. And so is Jesus. And that's our first point this morning. Recognize that Christ is priceless. Recognize that Christ is priceless. And that when you, when God, by his grace, open your, opens your eyes to see Jesus for the first time and your need for Jesus, right? It's, it's like Finding the ad on Craigslist that the little old lady whose husband has just passed away is selling this old jalopy that she thinks is worthless that she found in the barn that turns out to be a car that's worth $500,000 and she's selling it for $50,000. And you think, man, $50,000, that's a lot, but it's nothing compared to what that car is actually worth. I need to do everything I possibly can to get that car, right? Or it's like if, if you've ever seen the movie The Sandlot, anybody seen that movie? 
you remember they're, they're out in the, the sand lot and they're playing baseball and Benny hits a home run and the home run flies over the fence and they're going, oh man, and, and Smalls is all excited and Benny's disappointed. He's like, no, the game's over, Smalls. We can't play anymore. We don't have another ball. And Smalls thinks, wait a minute, my dad has a ball. And he runs home and he grabs the ball from the, the pedestal, from the trophy case. And he grabs it and they go back out and they just start playing because they're not thinking about it. And all of a sudden Smalls comes up to bat and Smalls is, is a little bit not good at, at coordination in sports. And, and he gets into one and he hits a home run over the fence. And so everybody's so excited. And Smalls is sitting there and he just goes pale white and he's going, oh no. And Benny's like, it's okay, we'll, we'll get another ball, we'll play again tomorrow. And Smalls goes, no, 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 you don't understand. That, that ball, my, my dad loved that ball. That ball, we, we have to get that ball back. Some lady gave that ball to my dad. And Benny goes, some lady, what do you mean? He goes, well, she wrote her name on the ball. It's beginning to dawn on them. And they look at him and they go, Smalls, what name was on the ball? And he sits there and he goes, well, I, I, I don't know, some lady's name, Baby Ruth. And they all go, Babe Ruth! And then it launches the rest of the movie where they're trying to get this ball back. And they're doing everything they possibly can, risking life even because of the massive, mastiff dog on the other side of the fence. Risking their lives to get this ball back. Why? Because the ball was that valuable because Babe Ruth had signed it. Okay, do we have that mindset about Jesus? Are we that consumed with Christ, with loving him, with wanting to know more of him? Yes, you have all the Christ that you need if you are in Christ when it comes to righteousness. You are declared righteous at the moment of your salvation. But do you have all the Christ that you want when it comes to your sanctification? Are you as close to Jesus relationally as you want to be? And I hope that we never say yes to that. I hope that we're always saying, no, I want to be even closer to Christ than I am now. I want to feel closer in my walk with him, closer in my relationship with him. I want to desire his word more. I want to pray more often. I want to be more thankful than I am. I want to sing his praises more than I do. I want to testify of his power in my, in my life more often than I do. And I want to be with him. Can you with Paul say for, for me to live is, is Christ, to die is gain. And I know which I would rather do. I would rather depart from this world and go to be with Jesus. Is Jesus priceless to you? Is he worth more than anything else in your life? When we think about being with Jesus, being in the kingdom of heaven, we think about a world where there's no more arrogance, no more anger, no more lust, no more physical deformities, no more blindness, no more paralysis, no more cancer, no more mental illness, no more evil, no more wickedness, no more rape, no more any of this, no more murder, none of these things, right? If you were to go and ask anyone on the street, hey, do you want a future like that? Anyone in their right mind is going to look at you and say, yes. And, and we know that the world even wants this because the world chases for this, but they chase for it in all of the wrong places. You have the world say, I, I don't like this world, so I'm going to drown my sorrows and dull my sentences with, with drugs and alcohol. And I'm going to look to escape. I'm going to look to find everything that the kingdom of heaven offers. I'm going to look to find that by just staying on one high, one buzz, one, uh, one experience to the next. And not allow myself to come down from it so I don't have to deal with the pain. Our world deals with this through workaholics. Saying, you know what, if I just don't ever stop, 
if I get up early and go to the office and come home late and just go to bed and do the same thing tomorrow, and if I amass my fortunes and build my kingdom and climb the corporate ladder and achieve everything that I want to achieve professionally, then I don't ever have to be alone by myself with my thoughts and think about the pain and the emptiness and the void that I feel within me because this doesn't satisfy me. Our world pursues this through sex. It says, well, if I just pursue physical pleasure from relationship to relationship to relationship to computer screen to phone to tablet, if I just pursue all of it, it, it then, then I can escape from the pain, escape from the reality, escape from the, the brokenness of this world. Our world pursues this through the entirety of the LGBTQ plus revolution that's going on right now. You don't like your world? Change yourself. Identify as something different. You were born in the wrong body. You were born the wrong gender. You were born the wrong sexuality. You're intersex. You're bi. You're non-binary. Find whatever it is that works for you that will give you a sense of happiness and satisfaction. And you know what? When that doesn't work, change yourself again. And in the end of the day, none of it works. Because we're looking for what only the kingdom of heaven can provide. What only the king of the king of heaven can provide. What only Jesus can offer us, which is this abiding satisfaction, which says we know we're never going to find the kingdom of heaven on earth. We say with Peter, we are strangers and aliens here. This world is not what? This world is not our home. But we know where we're going. And we know that where we're going is going to be the place with no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more disease, no more brokenness, no more murder, no more sin or any of its effects. And that's what gives us this sense that Jesus is priceless and we're willing to sacrifice and lay down everything in order to have Christ. These men find the treasure in the pearl and immediately they think, I have to do everything that I possibly can to get this. They see its value and they're willing even to say, I'm going to liquidate everything, all of my assets, all of it. I'm putting it all on the table because this is what I have to have. It consumes them. It's all that they can think about. You know, there's, there's two types of desires in the world. There's the just everyday abiding desires that we don't think much of, but they're there, right? Like you desire to breathe, yes? I'm going to assume that that's just an abiding desire that you always have. You desire to have food. You desire to be safe. You desire to have good friendships and good relationships. So there's those kinds of desires. But, but this is a different desire. This is a desire on a different level. This is a desire like the desire when Apple releases a brand new product. And you look at it and you go, whoa, I need to have that. I want to have that, right? And so what happens? Well, you begin to research it and think about it and daydream about it. And eventually you spend your money on it. And even it can impact the friends that you have. Don't bring in any androids into our group text because when you bring the androids and the little green bubble pops up, man, it is disastrous. Man, that consuming desire though, for whatever that is, whether it's an Apple product, a car, a house, a vacation, your retirement fund, whatever your consuming thing is that, that just, when you have free time, it's, it's what you're scrolling about on your phone. Whatever that desire is meant, is, is Christ more than that in your heart? Do you desire Jesus more than that? That's what I was talking about earlier. Do you, do you desire a closer relationship with him more than that thing? Are you consumed with Jesus more than you're consumed with anything else? Such that he is the overriding and abiding thought that saturates your mind and your words and your speech and your friendships. Point number two this morning is just that. Be consumed with that desire. Be consumed with a desire for Christ. 
you know, earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus had said this. He said, where your treasure is, there your what? There your heart is. Man, what is your treasure that has your heart? Is it Christ? Because if it's anything else, then you've found the wrong treasure. I often think about the angst that these two men must have felt between the time that they found the prize and the time that they actually took possession of it. The man finds the treasure in the field. He buries it so that no one can see it. And he goes and he sells all he has so he can come back and obtain the field. Or the, the, the pearl merchant. He sees this one that is the, the game changer for the rest of his career. He says, I've never seen one like this. I'll never see one like this again. And he, he, he leaves and he goes and sells all that he has so that he can come back and, and buy the pearl. What do you think was going through the minds of those two men in between the time that they left the, the great treasure behind and the time that they got back to get it. They were just obsessed with it. Right? And I'm reading between the lines and embellishing on a parable. I get that. But, but to make the point that, man, that should be our mindset with heaven right now, with being with Jesus right now, that, that we can't think about anything else other than we want Jesus. Really? Really, Pastor P.J.? I, I need to be that? Yes! Yes, and if we struggle to comprehend that, it's because we... we we're too easily pleased. We're, we're like C.S. Lewis described, right? We're, we're content playing in the mud and making mud pies in the slum because we can't fathom what's meant by a, a, an offer of a vacation on the beach. We've never experienced that. And so we're satisfied. We're far too easily pleased. Instead of saying, no, I want something more than what this world has, we look at this world and says, how can anything be better than what this world offers me? Man, how often do you think about heaven and being in heaven? And when you think about being in heaven, what are the thoughts that you have? Are you thinking about what you're going to do or who you're going to be with? Samuel Rutherford once wrote this. He said, oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without you, without thee, it would be a hell and if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be a heaven to me. For thou art all the heaven I want. Thou art all the heaven I want. John Piper modernized what Rutherford was saying there. And he said this, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters. If you could have all of that, if that would be yours for eternity and never ending, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? That feeling that you just experienced is called conviction, and I know it because I felt it myself. Because we're, we're prone in our self, not selflessness, but self-fullness, selfishness. We're, we're prone to make heaven about us and not about Jesus. Well, what am I going to get to do? What's it going to be like for me? What, am I going to be able to golf? Am I going to be able to surf? Am I going to be able to, to, to fly? 
What am I going to be able to do? And men, are we going to be able to do things in heaven? Yes, I believe we're absolutely going to be able to enjoy our glorified bodies on the new earth, but it's not going to be about what we get to do. It's going to be about the one that we are with. And that's Jesus. In fact, back, back in Revelation 22, the culmination of that passage there that I read earlier in Revelation 22, 1 through 5, has everything to do with the fact that we are going to be with Jesus. After he's talked about in Revelation 21, hey, there's no more sorrow, no more tears, no more sickness, no more any of that, right? That's pretty swell. I would take that eternity. But then he says this. He says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light nor lamp of sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Do you see that the, the, the climax of John's vision is that we get to, what, see Jesus face to face? That's what needs to consume us men, with a desire to be with him. A desire to want Jesus above and beyond everything else. Are there going to be other benefits in heaven? Yes. Like I just said, I think God's going to give us a glorified body not to sit on a pew and, and go all Gregorian chant for all of eternity, okay? The, our glorified bodies are going to be given to us so that we can use them to glorify him, right? However, let me compare it this way. If I go to the beach by myself and I, I, I walk along the beach, I can appreciate the beauty that's there. I can be in awe of the power of the waves that crash in. I can be amazed at the, the beauty of the, the, the sunset over the water. It's amazing. I, I, I can go and I can, can be in awe and I can worship God by being at the beach. But if I'm at the beach with my wife, all of those same things, the experience is ratcheted up for me because of the person that I'm with. So if you think of eternity and all of the things that you look forward to in eternity, all the benefits that we want to focus on and make the, the point of eternity, look, all of those things are, are fine and good, but all of them are going to be enjoyed to an even greater extent because of the one that we're with, because of Jesus. That's why in Psalm 1611, David says, in your presence, God, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand, at your right hand, God, are pleasures forevermore. Do you desire Jesus, men, or just the benefits of Jesus? Are you consumed with that desire for Christ? So that again, you can say with Paul, hey, look, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And I can tell you which one I want. I don't want to be here. I'd much rather depart and be with him for that is far better. These two individuals, they find the treasure, they find the pearl. They say, okay, I have to have it. Then what do they do? They, they act on that. Verse 44, then in his joy, the man who found the treasure goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. In verse 46, the, the merchant who on finding the one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it, bought the pearl. This desire drove these men to action so that they were willing to look at everything that they had, everything that they had amassed, everything that they had done. Say it's worthless compared to this one thing. 
I'm willing to trade it all for this one thing. Take your Bibles and flip over to Philippians chapter 3, if you will. Because the Apostle Paul gets this. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. Paul says, look, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Man, are you willing to, to do as the Apostle Paul did and take your earthly resume and take all of your earthly accomplishments and take all of the things that you might boast in and to take them and to crumple them up and to throw them in the garbage can and say, it's worthless in light of the surpassing value, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Jesus said this in Luke 14, 33. If any one of you does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Our final point this morning is this. Rethink, men, what really matters. Rethink what really matters. This is not about what these men had to offer to gain the treasure or to gain the pearl. This is not a, a platform for a works-based righteousness. This is not a platform for a meritorious salvation here that, that we're talking about. No, rather what Jesus is doing and what he's driving home is, is this, that he is worth more than anything else and that there's nothing in this world that we have or that we possess or that we want to possess that, that is, is more valuable than, than possessing Jesus, than being in Christ. And so practically what that means, man, is, is if there's anything in your life that is between you and God, that is obstructing your relationship with Jesus, your relationship with the Lord, that we need to have the mindset to say, I'm willing to let it go and to get rid of it. If there's an idol in my life that I'm giving my affection, giving my devotion, giving my time, giving my talents, giving my treasure to, that's not about Jesus, then God take it away from me because I'm willing to count everything as lost in light of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. When we're saved, what we value changes. Yesterday afternoon, I was at home with my son for lunch, and my son Samuel came to the, the back door. I was talking to my wife, Amanda, and, and he comes in, and he's very serious. Samuel's very intense with his emotions and his desires. And he's holding two matchbox cars. He goes, I want these inside. So we said, Okay. We have two cars that look just like that that are already inside. You can leave those ones outside. No, I want these ones inside. Okay, Sam, you can have them inside. So he came in and he took off his shoes and he went and washed the cars in the sink and got all the dirt off and dried them off. And then he sat down and started playing with them. He was obsessed with these two cars. I thought to myself, I don't remember the last time I cared about a matchbox car. But at some point I did. 
At some point, I was just like him. I wanted my cars. I wanted my cars in a particular way. I wanted to, to have them lined up. I liked my certain ones. I had my favorites. I had my least favorites. Now, I, I can't even remember what any of them looked like that I owned. Why? Because my, my entertainment values change, right? Now my toys have an on button. See, things change. What matters to us changes as we get older. Same thing if I can uh, with my relationship with my wife, right? I dated other girls before I, I, I met my wife, Amanda. And, and when I was dating them, I thought the world of them. And even after I, I had broken up with them before I met Amanda, I looked back on some of those relationships with fondness and thought, man, those were great relationships. I'm sorry that they, they ended that way. But once I started dating my wife, all of a sudden those relationships didn't matter to me anymore at all. I was willing to count them as rubbish and let the surpassing worth of knowing my wife. That's a little bit of what we're talking about here, men. When we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, it changes the way that we value everything else because he is the treasure above all. He is the pearl of great price. He is worth more than anything else. And we need to orient our entire lives around Christ. And anything that we need to give up for Jesus, we give up for Jesus. But not just because of eternity, men. Let's think about right now what we have in Christ that makes him so valuable to us. How about forgiveness of sin? There's nothing in this world that can offer you forgiveness of sin. Jesus can offer you forgiveness of sin. And with that comes freedom from guilt and condemnation. Again, this world is not going to give you freedom from guilt and condemnation. They're just going to tell you, you feel guilty about that? Oh, well, just don't feel guilty about it. Change. Re-identify. How about in, in Christ, there's, there's significant purpose. Our world is looking for purpose. Under every rock and every nook and cranny, and they can't find it. At least not one that gives abiding meaning to life. We have a purpose. We have a purpose to, to go and reach the lost with the gospel. We have a purpose to love our neighbors as ourselves. We have a purpose to, to glorify God in everything that we do. Why? Because we are in Christ. How about the hope that the, the gospel offers us of being in Christ, that there's hope beyond death? That's definitely not anything that this world can offer us. Nothing that this world can hold out to us can give us a, a peace of mind to say that when I encounter what everyone will encounter at some point in time, when I encounter death, when I breathe my last, nothing that this world has offered us, no doctor, no board, no anything else, none of them can do anything for you when you breathe your last. But Jesus can. How about the hope of eternal inheritance? This is a lot of what we've been talking about so far, but 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9, or 3 through 5, that there's this imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance that's being kept in heaven for you who are being guarded by God's power for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Right? That, that, that Christ has provided this future for us that is not going to be just dull and drab and mindless, but it's going to be enjoyed with the riches and glories of heaven that we get to participate in. All of these things 
cause us to rethink what really matters. To follow the example of Moses that we read about in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now that would have been a pretty sweet title to have. You know, talk about something that would have been valuable. To be considered the, the, the grandson of Pharaoh, essentially. I'll take that. The most powerful man on earth? Yeah, that's going to come with his privileges. But he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God and enjoy the, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Why? Why did you do that, Moses? Because he considered the reproach of Christ greater, notice the language here, wealth, greater treasure, greater value than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, he didn't know Christ by name. So he didn't know that what he was suffering was the reproach of Christ, but he knew that to be right with God, he needed to trust God for ultimate deliverance. And that trust, just like it was with Abraham, was credited to him as righteousness. And so he said, that rightness with the Lord is more important to me than the treasures of Egypt. Man, is a rightness with Christ more important to you than, than the treasures of this world? And just like I said at the beginning, there's a difference between pretense and reality. We can nod our heads to that and say, yes, the treasures of Christ are more important to me than the treasures of this world. But let me ask you, would your life bear that out? In fact, a, a good exercise would be to, to ask a person who knows you better than anyone else, hey, what would you say really matters to me as you observe my life? In fact, it might be even good to ask a non-Christian relative or friend that question so that you don't get the churchy answer. Or if you do, then you'll know, okay, wow, great. That's awesome that you know that I love Jesus. What are those things in life that you think, man, I, I, I have to have this. I can't live without it. And what if you lost that thing? See, that's one of the great things about Christ as our ultimate treasure, our, our pearl of great price. You can lose your house, you can lose your job, you can lose your car, you can lose your family, you can lose your possessions, you can lose your wife, you can lose everything under the sun. You can use, lose your life. But if you're in Christ, you can't lose Christ. Because Christ can't lose you. What did Jesus himself say? Look, all that the Father has given me will come to me. And of all that come to me, I will not lose one of them. That eternal inheritance that Peter talks about, you who are being guarded by God's power through faith. What's keeping you saved? What's keeping you in Christ? You might say, well, my faith is. Yes, but your faith is being guarded by God's power to preserve you so that you will inherit that undefiled, unfading, and imperishable inheritance being kept for you. Man, Christ is the most amazing treasure that we could ever find anywhere. He is uh, the, the pearl of great price. He is the treasure hidden in the field. And he is worth anything it might cost us to follow him. And so I pray that this morning you've made that decision to say, I have to have Christ because he is the greatest treasure. And I pray that maybe if you haven't made that decision, that this morning you're ready to make that decision. You're ready to say, okay, I get it. I, I, I want 
Jesus. And man, I pray that if, if you are a believer who's been faithfully walking with the Lord, I pray that we would be challenged this morning to think more as we think about eternity, more about the one that we'll be with and less about what we'll get to do. What we'll get to do, that'll take care of itself. But even what we get to do will be about the one that we're with, who is Jesus. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for Christ, the, the treasure, the pearl. We're thankful for, for Jesus, the king of the kingdom. And for the relationship that we have with you, Father, through his sacrifice for us on the cross. The relationship that we have with you, the guarantee of our future resurrection because he rose from the dead himself. Lord, thank you for Christ. I pray that you cultivate in our hearts a greater desire for closeness with him. A greater desire for the word, a desire for prayer, a desire to, to sing his praises, to be thankful to him to testify of, of the, the saving power of the, the gospel in our own lives. Lord, help us to want Jesus more and more and more. John says he came into the world, he was the light of the world, and the light shines in the darkness. God, help us cultivate a greater desire for the light of Christ in the midst of a world that is dark, so, so very dark. And to long for the day that we will be with him as John sees in the book of Revelation where he says we will see his face. God, we want that day.